you can have a sense of identity, but you allow that identity to grow and to change. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Life goes by fast, often too fast for most of us. And when people get to the end of their lives, what they do is they look back and they regret the things they didn't do. So what are the things that you are not doing that you keep saying you're going to do, but you're unable to do? Bring those things to me in the One You Feed Transformation Program and let's see if we can preempt those regrets. Let's get you living the life that you know you can live that for whatever reason, you're just not doing. The blocks could be from all different places, but what we do in the program is we look at you and we look at your life, what you want to accomplish and what your challenges are, and we come up with a plan that helps you to do the things that you want to do, to do the things that make life matter. And I'm there with you every step of the way, helping you accomplish these things. And again, doing the things that matter so that when you look back later, you don't have these regrets about how you let all this time go without doing these important things. If this resonates with you, go to ericzimmer.coach slash application and set up a time for us to talk. I won't try and convince you the program's the right fit for you. I'll tell you what I can do to help you, where I can help you. And I'll be sure to give you a couple tips to take on your way, even if you decide we're not the right fit. I can share with you lots of testimonials of really, really happy clients who've shared with me that this is one of the best things they ever did. So again, go to ericzimmer.coach slash application, and let's get you moving today in the direction of the things that are really important to you. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Mark Hennick. Mark has appeared in more than 100 television segments and countless more radio, print, and online features about mental health. Mark's TED Talk, Why We Choose Suicide, is among the most watched in the world with over 6 million views. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Eric. Uh, I'm really happy to have you on. We're going to talk in this episode about suicide, your story um, of, you know, kind of what what happened with you and um, just, you know, we're going to explore mental health in, in more detail. But let's start like we always do with the parable. There is a grandfather who's talking with his granddaughter and he says, in life, there are two wolves that are inside of us and they are always at battle. One is a good wolf which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the granddaughter stops and she thinks about it for a second and she looks up at her grandfather and she says, well, grandfather, which one wins? 
And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. So for me, I think the um, duality of life and death has haunted me for pretty much my entire life. And in many ways, talking about death has become my life's purpose. Uh, in many ways, it has saved my life. So for me, this idea of, you know, which one you feed, I could have fed the narrative uh, that uh, death could overcome me that death was inescapable, which granted it is. But in, in my ways, in my life rather, in my my way of looking at it, I guess, the two sides of the same coin uh, in terms of which side of that coin I feed, I guess. Um, you know, for me, reconceptualizing that, reconceptualizing my struggle, and in many ways my persistent struggle, it's what's given me the most life. It's what's given me the most purpose. So, so I happen to choose that definition of my struggle, that it's something that I overcame, uh, because that's what I need to believe. That's that's the narrative that I need to apply to my life, and, and my life is better because of it. Makes total sense. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? You gave one of the most popular TED Talks of all time on suicide. It's probably is the most popular TED Talk about suicide ever, although I, I don't have the facts to back that up, but I would assume so. Um, you know, share a little bit about what brought you to the point where you became a mental health advocate. Well, that started in high school, and I was still very much struggling at the time. Um, I had been in and out of hospital by that point, in and out of psychiatric wards specifically uh, in my local uh, small town hospital. Um, at least seven times. And as I looked back, I've, I've since written a book and have now gone through six drafts of that book. Uh, so I've been through these stories a lot and, and all of my medical records of in a, that time in and out of hospital. And I saw a very clear, uh, what we call in the clinical world, decompensation or, or, or unraveling uh, in my life, that it started out uh, my suicidality at about 12 years old. And it started out with just ideas, thinking about it, not even really having any intent or plan or even clear idea of why I wanted to do this kind of thing. And, and that's the other thing. Nobody gave me the idea to try to kill myself. It kind of grew organically in me. But what people did give me the idea uh, was that I wasn't allowed to talk about it. And in many ways, that message for me was far more damaging uh, than, than the symptoms themselves. So what started as something very amorphous and, and um, ill-defined gradually grew over repeated attempts, uh, struggling very deeply, repeated hospitalizations, uh, to the point where I was unhelpable, that I was broken, uh, that I was just one of the unlucky few. I, I was raised Irish Catholic, that so raised to believe that it was just my cross to bear, that I was just one of the unfortunate sufferers. And that life is hard. And of course it is, but there was no hope in that for me. And I didn't want to live that life. It's not that I wanted to die necessarily just for the sake of dying. It's that I didn't want to live like that. I didn't want to live in a world of people who I felt didn't care for me um, because I just didn't I didn't experience that on a day to day basis with, you know, growing up in a small town, poor, uh, having experienced trauma, have, never having experienced any other way of living. So. When I got to high school, it was after I had had a suicide attempt in which I was, I thought it was going to be my final attempt. It was my plan was for it to be my final attempt uh, to jump from a bridge in my small hometown of Sydney, Nova Scotia, uh, which stretched over an old abandoned steel plant that used to be in the area. 
that was an important place for me, like many suicide hotspots or suicide magnets or have some sort of significance for people. And that place was significant for me because this steel plant represented uh, a, a, an area that used to be so vital. It used to have so much life and it used to provide literally the livelihood for everybody uh, in my hometown uh, for all 32 plus aunts and uncles that I had. But here it was abandoned and empty and alone and falling down. And that's exactly how I felt inside. So, so I felt like that place got me. And uh, when I went there late at night and intending to kill myself, it was a complete stranger who stopped, uh, who eventually had to reach out when I let go of the railing and started to fall. And he grabbed me and pulled me back. And, you know, my recovery didn't happen that night. That's for sure. I mean, I'm still working on my recovery every day. But I think the small one degree of shift that did happen when that complete stranger saved my life was that I started to get a bit of a glimpse of being somebody else that I didn't have to be this poor kid who was struggling, who was destined to be, according to all the news media, a violent criminal because I had a mental illness, which of course isn't true. But I didn't know that because I didn't I didn't hear anything else. So that was the first glimpse that, hey, maybe I don't have to be uh, the sufferer. Maybe I can be like this stranger who pulls kids off bridges and who saves people's lives and who hears them. That's what was different about him. I felt like he heard me and, and he connected with me literally and metaphorically. And when I decided that, I think that's what started to change. So I went to high school, my high school principal, and I said I wanted to share my story for the very first time. Uh, he, he, of course, said no. Uh, promptly and clearly, he said no. <laughs> <laughs> but he, um, because he said, you know, the uh, this old stigma trope that if you talk about suicide, it gives people the idea to go out and do it. Uh, and that's just not true. It's not supported by the research. There's, there's right ways and wrong ways to talk about suicide. Yes. Um, 13 Reasons Why on Netflix is the wrong way. Uh, for I wrote all about that for CNN, and, and I'm very vocal on that point. And they're not the only ones, not to, not to point the finger at them. But there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. So I wanted to do the research. And um, I'm also, uh, I think, starting at that moment, an activist in many ways, too. So I went home to my little basement bedroom uh, with my Ozzy Osbourne posters uh, on the walls, uh, and I wrote my first ever article, an op-ed to my local newspaper, the Cape Breton Post. I'm sure all your your <laughs> listeners are subscribers to the Cape Breton Post. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's real popular. Uh, I think I, I liken the high school administration to communist Russia for stifling <laughs> my free speech. <laughs> and the next morning, there were television news cameras in the principal's office asking why it wasn't okay to talk about suicide and why it wasn't okay to talk about mental health. And I felt like two things happened after I did that. Uh, the first thing was that I felt freer uh, for being open about my story, uh, that I think I had been uh, suffocating myself by the idea that I couldn't talk about this stuff and that I was being controlled by this idea that I couldn't be open about who I was and what I had experienced. Uh, and the other thing that happened that I wasn't expecting was that People, even relatives, friends, family members, colleagues, complete strangers, started coming up to me and telling me that they had experienced what I had, what I was currently going through, uh, or that their mother or their sister, or their brother, or their father, or their best friend, whatever, had struggled or even had died with mental illness, and they felt like they couldn't talk about it. So that showed me that 
people did want to talk about all these really hard things, even like suicide. And the problem was that nobody was asking. People were waiting at the door for somebody to open the door. And and I realized that this is how I could be like that stranger uh, who saved my life. And and really, that's when an activist, an advocate was born. And in that high school, not being content uh, with the silence anymore. Yeah, yeah, makes total sense. So let's talk a little bit about what your recovery started to look like after mm-hmm. that, I guess, for for that block of time, your final suicide attempt. Mm-hmm. You know, what sort of things did you start doing? What sort of help did you get? You know, how did you, how did you sort of go from suicidal to yeah. a life that's different? And, you know, we'll talk about the fact that you still deal with depression. I think that's an important part of the story. But an equally important part of the story is you did get better. I did. Uh, I did. And I have repeatedly. And that's something I didn't realize until later. But I think in those early stages of what I now know of as my recovery, because I didn't know that I was recovering when I first started. That's an important thing. Sometimes you don't realize that you've started to recover until much, much later. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't always realize how far you've come until you actually take a minute to look back and realize where you were. So for me, I think it started with that having that sense of purpose. you know, that that gave me meaning, but it also gave me a distraction. It gave me something else to focus on that wasn't just me mm-hmm. um, and my problems and the darkness inside me and, and all of the things that I thought other people were thinking. <laughs> Mind reading is a big is a big thing when you get into that place. So it gave me it gave me uh, something to do. And with that, I started uh, and even just in in reflecting back again, I didn't realize I was doing it at the time, but I started seeking out healthier relationships and defining my boundaries better of what I was willing and not willing to accept in my life. Uh, speaking up more, um, and part of that maybe was just being a teenager and being more vocal. Um, <laughs> but I was the youngest in my family, in my immediate family, but then the first to go away to university. And I think that was one of the things that really just put me on the fast track to my recovery because university is hard, obviously, but it was the first time I had ever lived anywhere outside of my hometown. Um, so it showed me that the world was actually a lot bigger than it was in my head. And that if I was willing to be uncomfortable and to push myself outside of my own self-imposed, often boundaries, but often, but also culturally imposed boundaries, that I could discover so much more in the world if I was just willing to take the risk and be uncomfortable and do um things that weren't exactly what was expected of me and to do things that weren't necessarily quote unquote normal. And now I know, of course, that normal is a relative term. Right. Uh, so, so for me, it was that it was, it was finding and being willing to be uncomfortable and finding that willingness uh, to just push through it, even though it was hard. And that's a lesson that I still use in almost every aspect of my life. Having someone to share with and talk to and get feedback from is one of the key things in feeding your good wolf. And Talkspace Online Therapy makes taking care of your mental health more affordable and convenient than ever before. 
Simply provide your preferences for therapy and Talkspace will match you with one of more than 5,000 therapists the very same day. You can send your therapist unlimited text, audio, picture, and video messages from anywhere at any time. No matter what you're going through, you're not alone. You can join more than 1 million people who feel happier with Talkspace. And it's really convenient and easy to use. No more commuting, no more trying to find hours that work for you. You can send messages and work with your therapist from the privacy of your device from anywhere. And it's affordable. One month of therapy on the Talkspace platform costs about the same amount as a single face-to-face session. And best of all, you never have to wait a week to share what's on your mind. Talkspace has more than 5,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing the challenges we all face. To match with your perfect therapist for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code WOLF to get $65 off your first month and show your support for the show. That's promo code WOLF at Talkspace.com to save $65. Talkspace.com. It has been a crazy busy week for me, and were it not for Daily Harvest, what I've eaten this week would not look nearly as good as it does. Daily Harvest makes it easy to get back into the habit of eating more fruits and vegetables with thoughtfully sourced, chef-crafted food that can be prepared in less than five minutes. Lots of days this week I went for their smoothies, which is my favorite thing that they have, although they have soups and savory harvest bowls. I really enjoyed the cucumber greens smoothie this week. Everything stays fresh in your freezer until you're ready to eat it. You add water, put it in the blender, boom, done. They are so nutritious and they are so delicious at the same time. You can go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code FEED to get $25 off your first box. That's promo code FEED for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com. That's dailyharvest.com and use promo code FEED. Your family life at that point was not good. I assume getting away to university was also ended that part of it. Insofar as I can end, you know, the that part of it. But yeah, I mean, my father left uh, officially anyway when I was four. Um, so my mother, on a single parent salary, uh, we struggled for, for years. Uh, when we moved into a new home and became part of a blended family, that became emotionally abusive very quickly. Uh, and I was surrounded constantly, by, especially by my stepfather, by this toxic masculinity, this idea that men especially can't show emotion, they can't cry, that that makes you gay as though that were the worst thing in the world, <laughs> you know? Right. That it makes you a sissy. Uh, and, you know, that was always around me. So I received the message very clearly, consistently from a young age that it was not okay to talk about how I was feeling. Uh, but also... I never really had the the language for it anyway, because nobody ever taught me what to call these things that I was feeling. You know, you're born feeling emotions, of course, but you're not born knowing actually what to call those emotions or even less so what to do with those emotions. So as a young boy being told that he had to be a man from as young as eight or nine years old, uh, I never really got the basic skills for how to deal with my emotions. And then when I was faced with, you know, going off to undergraduate uh, and living in residence and needing to figure all that stuff out for the first time and make a whole lot of mistakes along the way, that's for sure. 
um, it was really the first time in many ways that I started experimenting and learning more about myself. And, and I think that that was exactly the kind of safe risk-taking that I needed. Yeah, makes total sense. So in your TED Talk, you talk about something, you call it the perceptual field. Let's mm -hmm. start by having you kind of define what you mean by that. Yeah. So I started thinking about this and this is this idea of, of a perceptual field or perceptual space. It's been haunting me almost my entire personal and professional life because I think it really in many ways started on that night at midnight, standing on an inch and a half of concrete, 40 feet above the ground, ready to kill myself when I could not see any other option. And it didn't matter that there were other options. It didn't matter that there were people who loved me, who, who would be devastated if I died, uh, who wanted to help me, who even tried to help me. None of that stuff mattered in that moment because I couldn't see it. And if I can't see it, then it's not real. I, in undergrad, I did uh, psychology and philosophy, tried to try to marry those two things together because I was so obsessed with this idea. Um, and part of that idea is that the way that I explain this or, or, or think in my own mind of this perceptual field is that it's like this bubble uh, around you. And it's basically everything that you can perceive in any given moment. And then from a Freudian perspective, I suppose, what's just beyond that bubble are the things that you could perceive or have perceived and that can move in and out of how you perceive the world at any given time. What I think that I add to this, and I think, I think I'd still like to be able to articulate this, it's going to take me my entire career to do it, but is that that bubble changes, that the composition of that bubble around you, that perceptual space around you changes. You know, sometimes we've experienced this, this um, experience of transcendence, where we feel like we're at one with the universe. But at other times, we're so focused in on one thing. In the TED Talk, I use the example of getting cut off in traffic in a really dangerous way or if uh, something really shocking happens, or something really exciting and, happen and happy happens to us, we tend to zoom in on that thing as though it's the only thing happening. And we've all had this experience of time feeling like it drags on forever, or that it, or the time flies when you're having fun, as they say. You know, I, I think that's all stuff that happens because our focus and this perceptual field around us is changing all the time, depending on what we need. When we get into a state of uh, depression, a suicidality, I conceptualize that as that perceptual field or that bubble around us of things that we can know. Uh, it calcifies, it hardens, it darkens, and it becomes very difficult to see anything outside of that bubble, even if it's standing right next to us at the time. Uh, so then we need something to pierce that field, to let some of that poison out, to let some of that pressure out. For me, it happened to be a complete stranger who who saw a kid on the side of a bridge and literally reached out and grabbed me and and snapped me out of it, to use an inartful metaphor, but really pierced that that place for me, at least in that moment, so that way I could do other work. And I think that's still... Uh, the way that I think of that experience, when I'm sliding into that stuck place, that dark, tight, um, suffocating place, all these all these synonyms for it, that's what I think of as being in that place of depression, is that that's what it does. Depression is a problem in the functionality of your psychological perception of your world around you. It limits your view. It limits your options. Uh, it limits, it depresses, literally, everything that you can experience. So, you know, this is something that I still add flesh to almost every day, this idea of how can we reinflate that space? How 
can we air it out? How can we make it more permeable so that way we can we can interact with the world in a in a healthy way where we have a core sense of ourself, but then that also grows and changes and breathes uh, depending on the world around us. Yeah, that idea of expansion and contraction, we've talked about on the show many times that health and wellness and awakening, if you want to talk about it in a spiritual sense, is this broadening of perspective. It's this, yeah. it's this releasing, it's this unclenching, right? And that, that it's that sort of shutting down more and more myopic, you know, gripping yeah. tighter, holding tighter is the, the direction that we get more ill. And it's funny, I, I often think about this, you know, I, I, I got sober in 12 step programs and, you know, there's this idea of, you know, let go and let God. And, and I hit a point where I was like, well, I don't really believe in a God who's going to come in and clean up what I let go of. Right. So what am I letting go of? And I eventually hit a point where I was like, it does not matter. Right. right. <laughs> it's the holding on so tight. That's making me yeah. sick. That's what causes the friction, right? And then, and then friction causes the fire. But if you let it slide away, now I will say, however, that there's a limit to that, and and we see this in Eastern religious traditions as well. For those listeners who happen to be experts, I'm not, but this idea of becoming one uh, with your surrounding and losing actually your sense of self. So I think you do actually need that bit of boundary. You need to be able to limit your perception in a way, uh, but it does need to be able to be to be breathable, to be to be permeable. So you can have a sense of identity, but you allow that identity to grow and to change uh, depending on the, the environment around you. I think that's key. Right. And even I think in those spiritual traditions that talk about no separate self, there is the mm -hmm. idea that at the same time, there absolutely is both. Yes, on one hand, no, you're not what you think you are. You're not this small, limited thing. You're more connected to everything than you think you are. Yeah. It's all one, and it's all different. <laughs> it's yeah. this It's yeah. this balance of those things. And, and yeah, I mean, we have to be able to function as humans. We have to know when someone says, Eric, that I go, oh, that's me. You know, right. I answer to that. But yeah, I think it's in general that how do we expand? So what are some of the things that you've thought of or have worked in your life to uh, either expand that perceptual field? You use the word darkness and and closed, you know, you talked about making it more permeable. What are some of the things for you that help you expand that field? I love being uncomfortable. I know that sounds really strange, but, and part of it is just maybe sensation seeking. I don't know, but I remember as a very young boy, uh, either laying on a beach or walking along the street on a sunny summer day. And I used to love the sensation of getting a sunburn, of, of feeling the tingle of the sun burning my skin. And why I raise that is because I love this idea of change, of difference, of being uncomfortable, even if it's painful sometimes, because through pain comes growth and that comes change. And I, I really believe, uh, you know, to reference back to your parable, that even in the most traumatic, uh, challenging situations, the most painful situations, uh, something good can come from it depending on the lens that you take and the work that you do with it. And I really remind myself a lot now because of the public work that I do in, in suicide prevention, suicide awareness, 
that family members talk to me all the time, um, parents especially who have lost a teenage kid, uh, but a, a somebody of any age to suicide. And one of the most common emotions that they experience is blame and guilt, rather, uh, because they feel like, you know, if we're raising awareness of suicide, maybe they could have noticed it earlier on. And what I almost always tell them is that it's an absolute tragedy that their loved one died and they didn't have to. And we can use that information to ensure that nobody else experiences that tragedy, that it's awful and uh, it's useful to others, that we can not let them die in vain, that we can use that tragedy to help uh, ensure that nobody else ever has to experience that tragedy again. So I think that we can use these things that happen to us. And, and that's a big part of what's been important um, for me in, in breaking free and in expanding that perception and being uncomfortable, leaning into discomfort. You know, I have depression, but I also have an anxiety disorder. I have social anxiety disorder, actually. That was one of my fir very first diagnoses when I went into the hospital. And I still get nervous before I go on camera. And I've done hundreds, literally hundreds of on-camera uh, interviews and conversations. I go on stage all the time. It's my full-time gig now. And I still get nervous before I do it because I still have social anxiety disorder. But for me, I've re-narrated it in my head. I've, I've re-ascribed new meaning to it to be, oh, I'm feeling nervous. Okay, that's how I know where the wall is. That's how I know where I need to jump over, where I need, where I need to push through. I think that's how I do it. I identify what makes me uncomfortable and I run into it rather than away from it. Most of the time, I try to make sure that I'm actually doing the right thing, that I'm not going to be putting myself in harm's way. That hasn't always been the case. <laughs> you know, I've made terrible mistakes in that way, and I've gotten hurt, of course. Uh, you know, so I'm not always right. Um, but even that is a good experience, because part of having social anxiety disorder, part of having any anxiety disorder, I think, and having an avoidant coping strategy that comes with that is, is perfectionism uh, and of avoiding things that make you uncomfortable. But of course, that just feeds the beast. That just maintains the anxiety. That's what it wants is to stay around. So it makes you avoid all the things that could challenge it. I think in many ways, uh, especially now that it, that I've had some distance from it, uh, credit a liberal arts undergraduate education. You know, in, in undergrad, when I studied psychology and philosophy, the whole idea of the liberal arts is asking challenging questions uh, and identifying what you believe. Great. Wonderful that you believe that. Let's see how you stand up against all the things that you don't believe. You know, it's that what you believe is the starting point. So now let's expose you. Let's interrogate you uh, with all of these other things. And especially now in the age of social media, that's so, I think, antithetical to what people think. To, to step outside the echo chamber that is one of the most terrifying things in the world. But I think that's necessary. I think that's how we expand our perception. Being active is more important than ever, and that's why I am excited to introduce On, perhaps the best kept secret in the running world. I love these shoes. I have been buying them for four years, and I don't buy anything else. They were founded in 2010 in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's the fastest growing running brand globally. 
Their philosophy is that you should run how you were born to run. Instead of correcting your movement, on shoes react to your individual running motion. As I said, I love these shoes. I use them for trail running, for all uh, running on the streets, and just day-to-day wear. They are amazing. And on is offering our listeners an exclusive offer. Try the shoes or gear for up to 30 days commitment-free. Head to on-running.com slash feed and pick your favorite shoes and apparel items. Apply the code TRYONFEED at checkout to test your new products for 30 days. Love them, keep them. Not convinced? Send them back for a full refund. That's on-running.com slash feed and the promo code is TRYONFEED. What would you say to someone who is suicidal or contemplating it, thinking about it, you must get asked this question. When it feels like everything is wrong with you, what if there was nothing wrong? What if exactly what you were experiencing is exactly who you need to be right now? And that's okay. And you can use that and it can be great. And I say in the TED Talk, we need you We need your story. We need your struggle because that's what changes the world. Nobody has ever changed the world who hasn't gone through terrible struggle. And I know that, you know, it comes back to that old Irish Catholic idea, I guess, of maybe it is. I don't know. That's what I ascribe it to of, you know, I don't want this to be my cross to bear. It's not always going to be. That's the thing when you're able to to accept it and and, uh, when you can accept that you can use this, that's when you change. That's that's the dichotomy of it, this idea, this tension of acceptance and change. When you accept that, okay, it is what it is. I don't like it. I don't have to. That's okay. That's when you can really start to change. For me, what I what I try to tell people all the time is, yes, it's hard. It's awful. It's just about the most, it's the worst thing in the world to feel like you don't want to be in the world anymore. And I've been back there. My story isn't just a hallelujah, come to Jesus recovery moment, you know, that everything suddenly got better and look at them now. I still struggle. I still relapse usually once a year. Um, I've been about 18 months or so without a relapse yet. So this is the longest stretch, stretch that I haven't. But um, I've had some really serious relapses over the the um, last 15 years since I since I was on that bridge. But I'm still grateful for even that. I'm grateful for every relapse because it teaches me a little bit more about who I am, about how I recover, what my triggers are, what my strategies are to get out of it. I've become very good at being depressed because I know how to do it now. And and that's it, that that you can you can turn your struggle into something good. And why not? We're all going to die anyway. That's guaranteed. So you might as well have fun with it. You might as well do something with it. Do Take some risks. Um, use what you have. And, and that's certainly what I've done. And so when you talk about relapsing, describe that word, you know, you've had relapses. What does that look like or what does that mean for you? Well, for me, relapse in many ways has become kind of clean and tidy because I've done it so many times um, that it started off as messy. It started off as, oh, I'm on, I'm on medication now and the doctors tell me I'm going to be fine. And then a few weeks later, I'm not fine, very clearly not fine. And then I blame that on me, especially near the end after I became what's known as a frequent flyer in the mental health system, you know, in and out of uh, psych wards so many times. 
I thought that I was just un, un, unhelpable if all these experts, all these super smart people can't figure out what's wrong with me, then it's my fault, basically. Uh, which, of course, isn't true because there are so many problems with the system and so much that we don't know about the brain and about the mind and about struggles uh, that it's not your fault that you're struggling in the way that you are. But I didn't know that at the time. Uh, so I thought that relapse in those early days, that it was a failure on my part. Why am I failing to get better? Or even if I would attempt suicide and not complete it for whatever reason, that I, f I failed at suicide. Well, no, if I didn't die, that's not a failure. That's a pretty big success if I'm still alive, actually. Um, so, so that's one of those, that's when I became interested in stigmatizing languages as, as well. People don't fail in, in suicide attempts. They do or don't complete. That's the language that we use. You know, I, I think that I started to get the hang of my relapses several years in once I realized more about my pattern, that it was okay things are starting to go downhill. I've been here before. I've been here, you know, 20 times before. I know what this looks like. In my case, I become more irritable. Uh, I tend, I'm less patient. I tend to sleep more. Uh, I don't exercise as much. Uh, I eat differently. I socialize differently. Uh, and I just have this, this feeling of a wet, dark blanket over me all the time. Uh, th that feeling of contraction and feeling trapped. Um, so when that starts to set in, it used to take me a very long time to realize I'd be very deep underground uh, early on before I'd realize what was happening. Uh, but nowadays it's more, you know, I'm a, I'm a few weeks into it and it's been, you know, a couple of weeks and I just, I'm not where I like to be. And, I, and you know, part of getting good at depression, I think, is realizing where you like to be just as much as realizing your triggers and, and how you know you're not doing well. Well, how do I know I am doing well? How do I how do I appreciate and celebrate and take note of and be grateful for the times that I'm doing really well? It's important to notice that too, because uh, that shows you the comparison. And once I learn to do that, you know, it still takes me some time, and sometimes I can get pretty far down the rabbit hole before I realize. But that's because I'm human, uh, and I'm gentler with myself now. So, you know, I, I think. Um, Depression and recovery takes practice, and you have to get used to the uncomfortable feeling of, if you want to call it failure, fine, that that happens. That's okay. It's just another chance to do it again and to learn more about it. It's it's cyclical. It's not a one-size-fits-all, and it's not a one-and-done thing. Recovery is weird. It's up and down, back and forth, <laughs> sideways, and every other direction. Uh, but you figure it out as you go, and there's no right way to do it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. What do you think causes you to swing back down? Do you think there are external reasons? Do you think there's just a cyclical nature to the thing that you have? Do you stop taking such good care of yourself? I'm, I'm really fascinated by this because I've noticed the same thing with my depression. It just seems like... There are times where I'm like, well, well, I'll be damned. There it is again. You know, I don't f even necessarily know most of the time why. I do sort of know what I can do that will help minimize it. And, and you know, I can sometimes look and see like, oh, well, I haven't been doing this, this and that, which I know are really good for me. So I kind of get back to it. But there's other times it just seems completely 
unexplainable to me. Yeah, and I think that's actually one of the symptoms, of course. We're talking about mental illness here, and it's it's mental for a reason because it impacts the way that you think, right? And one of the first things in my personal experience, I can't speak for everybody because it is different for everybody, I think, generally. Uh, there are a lot of commonalities, but one of the first things that depression attacks is your ability to see it. <laughs> because, again, it's, a, it's like a parasite. It, it's like an abusive lover. It doesn't want to be caught. It doesn't want you to know, right? So it's going to hide and it's going to it's going to impair your faculties that see it. So for me, it would impair my um, willingness to go out and socialize with my friends. Therefore, there's going to be fewer friends around me to notice that I'm behaving differently, <laughs> right? It's a sneaky thing, uh, depression. Um, so so all of those things would would happen and and uh, you know, I'd be feeling all these different ways and I'd be gradually, um, very often, it wasn't usually black and white, I'd be gradually cutting things out of my life or withdrawing. And I'm an introvert anyway, even though I do all this public stuff, I'm an introvert anyway, so it often people wouldn't realize. Um, or, or if I was cranky, you know, sometimes crankiness and anger and irritability, that bothers people so they don't want to be around you because it's not socially acceptable. Well, maybe behavior is information. Maybe you're cranky and irritable for a reason. Um, but nobody usually asks that kind of kind of question, especially if you're telling them, <laughs> telling them off. <laughs> so uh, I think that you learn to realize, oh, that was kind of an overreaction to that person. That person probably didn't mean it that way. Uh, when I when I'm able to ask myself those questions, that's what starts to help me break out of that or expand that perception, break out of that bubble, because it challenges my view. I had to learn, and this is one of those dualities again. I had to learn to trust myself, but I also had to learn to not believe everything that I thought. Just because I thought everybody was out to get me, just because I thought that I had tried everything, quote unquote, everybody says that, despite the fact that it's almost physically impossible to try everything, right? That there's always more things to try. You know, I, I think that when I realized that I could challenge thoughts in my mind, uh, then that's what really helped me to, to see my cycles more clearly. Yeah, and I think what you said earlier about getting good at being depressed is is sort of important. I'm significantly older than you are, so I've had significantly more cycles, right? I've got I've got years of it, right? So I think I catch it fairly quickly now. I actually sometimes refer to it as the emotional flu. It sometimes seems to me the equivalent of when I get physically sick. It's just there it is and it's, you know, there's not a whole lot to really explain it. And, and I try and treat it like I would if I was physically sick. Right, I'm going to take better care of myself. I'm going to do the things I know are good for me. And I'm not going to make a huge fuss about this. And, and what I mean by making a fuss is I'm not going to sit there and when my brain starts saying, well, you're clearly in the wrong career, you're clearly with the wrong person, you clearly don't have any friends, you clearly, I just sort of go, I, you know, same way like when I'm sick, the world looks bleak. I'm just physically, I'm like, I'm just going to sort of let those to the best of my ability. I'm not going to engage in any deep thought here about the quality of my life. I'm just going to take care of myself and wait for it to pass. And that's one of those things that I really think you can only learn through experience. Look, I mean, I'm in my 30s now. Um, I've got a family. I've got three kids and a wife. And that's you just don't learn that kind of lesson until you actually live. And, you know, the number of times that I've been 
you know, awake at 3.30 in the morning and for some brilliant reason thought, oh, I better send that angry email or that text or do that weird thing or say that thing that I'll regret later. But it seemed like a good idea at the time because, <laughs> because when you're in that bubble, you, that's how you see the world. Those are your depression-colored glasses that you're wearing. And, and you only learn later on, you know, now, sure, I can still lay awake at 3 o'clock in the morning. This just happened the other night. And I thought, well... I guess I can go to the gym. It's 24 hours across the street. I guess I can go to the gym instead. <laughs> like, because when you, when you fight it, like you said, you get into that, into that back and forth, into that tension. It causes that friction and that fire. And that doesn't help. I don't have any tattoos, but if I ever do, the one that I'll get, it, it's a little cliche maybe, but it would be that this too shall pass. I, I've repeated that mantra to myself so many times. It's the mantra to my, to my entire life this too shall pass. And especially if you've relapsed a bunch of times before, or however many times, it doesn't even matter if it's twice or 20 times or 200 times, it passes and it will. Sometimes it takes longer than others. But like you said, the more you cling to it, the longer it will take to pass. So let's just sit back and this sucks. Yes, but let's let it suck. And that's okay that it sucks. We're going to get through it. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's a, it's sort of this strange balance of on one hand, accepting it that, okay, this is here, like you said, this kind of sucks, and sort of being skillful about the things that I know can help and making sure I'm engaging in them and doing them. It's sort of like the serenity prayer a little bit, right? Like you accept the fact that the depression is here, and then, but then you have the courage to change the parts of that you can. Oh, am I eating well? Am I taking care of myself? Am I seeing friends? You know, it's, it's sort of both of those things. I think at least that's what helps me. I think it is. And that's one of the things too, though, that, you know, you have to meet people where they are in terms of giving advice and, you know, advocacy, mental health advocacy and awareness and activism is like anything else. You make a lot of mistakes. And when I, when I, have talked about that in the past, you know, this idea that depression actually physically does not steal away your ability to walk. It does not. It does not infect your legs. It does not break your bones. It's one of the most common symptoms, one of the most common experiences I've felt it on virtually every relapse, where you want to say, I just can't get out of bed in the morning. I'm just not able to get out of bed in the morning. And you really believe that with every fiber of your being. And in, in many respects, it's true, except for the fact that biologically it's not, uh, right? That it's your brain convincing you of that. But yes, you actually can. And even if you only step out of that bed for five minutes just to get that short, quick shower and you hate every minute of it, that maybe that's something that you do need to push yourself to do, that maybe it's not the healthiest thing in the world to give into your mind, to believe everything you think, and to stay in bed for nine days straight. <laughs> you know, that, that maybe you do need to make yourself uncomfortable. But there comes a point where you can, you can push that too hard and you really do need to meet people where they are and realize, okay, if it's five minutes or, or the rest of the day, you do have to do something uh, to help your own well-being. I've got a couple really good friends who struggle. One of them is, is similar to you, multiple suicide attempts. And, mm -hmm. you know, he'll sort of cycle back down and, and it's really difficult to find, like, how much do I push him? How much yeah. do I let him be where he is? How much, like, yeah. I sort of 
learned how to meet him where he is in in, yeah. in a way as much as as much as you can do that but it's definitely uh very challenging and you know that idea of moving you know one of my one of the phrases i cling to is depression hates a moving target you know for me it's just like whatever just move whether that be physically exercising whether that be just getting out of the apartment whether that be doing something inane but you know not not something stupid but just moving and i almost feel in some ways like one of the things that has helped my depression is that my life has a momentum to it that carries me through if I'm struggling. Like I have so many things that I have committed to that I'm doing. Sometimes I just feel like literally it just carries me through. And, and, you know, I know there were times in my life where that was not the case and being dead stopped. I was dead stopped and it's really hard to get moving. But I just, like I said, sometimes I think a busy life for me can be helpful in just keeping me moving when I'm struggling. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you just have to let life flow. You don't have to be super mindful in every minute of every day about your recovery. Sometimes you just live. And that's actually even better uh, often uh, to just do things and not worry about the implication that it has for you. Worry about that later. And ideally, it's nothing too you know, dangerous for you, obviously. Um, but doing things unexpected uh, can be some of the best things for your life. But then just falling into rhythm can be great, too. Uh, because that helps you to recalibrate, to, to zone out for a little bit. Just watch Netflix for a little while and let it flick over to the next <laughs> to the next show <laughs> or to the next episode a few times. Ideally, though, everything in moderation and not falling into that trap because I'm hyper aware of my own tendency uh, for comfort, my own need for comfort, to not want to do that. And even though, you know, I've I've made a life for you know, I've had depression for more than half my life now. I've had it for longer than I haven't, um, for much longer than I haven't, actually. And still, my tendency is to avoid discomfort. But I know that that's what's best for me and that's what's good for me. So, you know, I, I, I think that it's important that you that you do that, but it's also important that you balance it as well. It's all about balance. Yep. Amen. Well, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And, you know, thank you for sharing your story and, and the work that you're doing out there. Well, thank you for having me. And I really hope that, uh, like I said, the, the book is on its um, draft number six now. I'm waiting for my editor to get back to me, but uh, it, it should be out sometime uh, next year, I would imagine. Uh, and I hope that people check out my podcast as well. That's really been a, a really eye-opening experience for me to sit back and do what you're doing now. It's called So-Called Normal. It's available on all podcast platforms everywhere with uh, with Entertainment One. Uh, and I, I just have these kinds of conversations uh, with other people about their stories as well. And and I hope that my background can help illuminate theirs. So I really admire what you're doing. And, and I would like to thank you and your audience for uh, inviting me into your ears. <laughs> you are very welcome. <laughs> that sounds kind of that sounds kind of gross, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Mark. Okay. If what you just heard was helpful to you please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneufeed.net slash support. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show.